Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. This is a special edition of the podcast with co-host Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETF Sponsor. I'm joined in the studio today by co-host Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. Please note, I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. The discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products. Views of our guests are their own and not those of Litsum Tree or its affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show today. We're going to have a guest for the hour, Catherine Kaminsky. She's a specialist in systematic investing. We're going to talk to her about managed futures, which she's done a lot of writing about. She's written a, a book. Trend Following with Managed Futures, The Search for Crisis Alpha. Uh, and Wes is uh, one of the people who follows this perhaps you know more closely than I do, but uh, I also am, we're two of the nerds in the ETF industry focused on Managed Futures. And Wes, I see you have the book here with a lot of markups. I know you're looking forward to this conversation. Oh, I'm, I'm pumped about this one. Um, we, just a little bit more about Catherine. She was listed as one of the top 50 leading women in hedge funds in 2015. She did. She's doing her PhD at MIT. We have one of the people she's collaborated with, uh, Professor Andrew Lowe, on the show a little while ago. Catherine, uh, thanks for joining us on our program today. Great to be here. Um, nice to meet you guys. Um, maybe you could talk as I look through your, your CV and your background. You know, you you went you started off in sort of technology, went from Qualcomm to SockGen. Maybe sort of talk how you started studying your sort of career path, how you got from technology oriented work towards towards finance. So um, I started off. Uh, I spent about my undergraduate degree was in electrical engineering, and I was really interested in signal processing and. I spent some time thinking I wanted to build cell phones and work with digital communications. But um, one summer, I did an internship at SockGen in Paris and uh, started doing quant uh, quant research. And I, you know, honestly, I didn't even at that point I was very inexperienced in finance, so I I didn't know a lot about all the things that I was modeling. But I was realized that it was extremely exciting and. Um, after that point, I decided um, to do a PhD in MIT in operations research, which is an apply, sort of a an applied math discipline at the Sloan School, um, with a specific focus of applying uh, math techniques in finance. Um, that's where I met Andrew Lowe, um, and I did a PhD at MIT with him, completed in '07. The thesis that I did was on stopping strategies and stopping rules and sort of the whole entire premise behind um, most of my research at that point was about trying to understand why investors use rules and how they um, these rules can be used to, to make decisions in finance. Um, and that was the beginning. After this, I ended up moving to Sweden um, and working at the Stockholm School of Economics. I then moved into industry and um, always keeping one foot <laughs> yeah. in the in the academic side because I just think it's so exciting. Um, and so I started working as an, an allocator um, at a fund of funds that focused on systematic uh, strategies. So the exciting part about that job was that we focused on doing due diligence on all the bigger firms out there. So we got to know them. We analyzed their returns. We analyzed how they built their portfolios. We compared them. And at the same time, we worked with investors trying to understand how to explain to them why they should invest in a portfolio of systematic, primarily, um, and futures-based strategies. So it was kind of being in the intersection of the investor and the manager. Um, following that, I've done a lot of different – I worked with some start startup CTAs. I've also – uh, was working with ISAM um, somewhat, and we wrote this book together 
Um, then I also worked as a portfolio manager, a research director in a large CTA um, here in the U.S. And now I'm uh, back at MIT, so back in the back in the in the throes of academia, um, which you know I think you can learn from both sides. Hopefully, you know, uh, getting some ideas from academia and then taking ideas from practice together. Sounds like Wes over here, who has got his foot in the academic as well as now the investment management. I see why his he wanted to talk to you so much, Wes. I know you want to jump in. Yeah, Katie, I actually just had a question just because I get it all the time, and I'm not really the right person to answer it. But the question is related to if I'm a physics PhD or a math PhD or someone from your kind of hard science background, how how is that? How did you do that transition? And do you have any advice for people out there who are maybe thinking about doing that? Yeah, I mean, I think the exciting part about finance is that it what what I have seen is that it provides such exciting um, opportunities to analyze. There's so much data and there's so much. Um, opportunity if you can actually add to someone's process. So for people, I think one of the challenges, let's say, if you're starting in, in physics or you're starting in operations research, is that you have to learn the language of finance um, first. And so a lot of the success I've seen and friends of mine who are physicists and, and, and quants is that kind of learn the basics of the language of finance and some of the intuition and then um, sort of by learning that, you kind of become part of the, the finance community, and there's lots and lots of exciting things that you can do. I've seen a lot. Actually, MIT used to have, and this is a program that was was run by Andrew Lowe, um, something which was called the Finance Technology Option. This is prior to the fact that they had a, a master's in finance, because now a lot of people go into that and do a master's in finance to do that transition. But back in the day, he had a, a program called the FTO program, which I was heavily involved with. And there you had PhD students across uh, MIT who had interest in quant who would take some classes together on finance. Um, and it was a whole track of, to kind of give you the introduction, to, to kind of give you the lay of the land so that you would know what areas of finance might be the most relevant or the most um, fitting to your skill set. So whether it's credit risk modeling to um, to trading to, um, I don't know, the whole, you know, the whole, the whole kit and caboodle of things that you find in, in, in finance that quant finance is useful for. So what's your, your current research agenda at MIT when you think about the different, different topics that are, that are interesting you? So now I'm a visitor at the MIT Lab for Financial Engineering with Andrew again, and I have to be honest, um, the number of times you hear people say machine learning here, um, you could, <laughs> it's constant. Um, so I think that, and MIT is really interesting because if you look at what's popular at MIT, usually five or ten years later, um, oftentimes you can see that becomes popular things within the the industry. So right now, um, some of the interesting projects are that I'm working on is some stuff with big data, and then also I myself have been interested in transaction, um, in not transaction costs, but in uh, fee structures, because CTAs right now have been, there's been a lot of um, discussion in, of how important are fees, how do, should you properly calculate them, and how do they really impact um, impact investors' investments, um, and how do they impact proper calculation of fees and transaction costs? How do they really impact the results that we see sometimes in the literature as well? Yeah. Uh, Katie, this is Wes. I had a question for you. Um, so futures are something that I kind of came into you know, later in life because I was brainwashed to believe that you know, they don't work and it's a waste of time, whereas it sounds like you kind of started off in that space, and I'm just curious... What, how, how and why that happened and you didn't get down the equity bond path like everyone else? That's a good question because I, I remember having some very frustrating meetings um, because I became a futures person right away. Um, but when I was a PhD student, I remember having to teach futures and I thought they were fascinating. Um, and then when I went to the Stockholm School of Economics, I started teaching um, derivatives contracts. And I found that futures was really, really exciting area. And when I started looking for a job in the industry, I was naturally interested in, in futures because I thought it was, you know, 
just the fact that you could get risk exposure and the type of, of leverage that you can get and the way that you manage money in futures is just so different from traditional equity investors in the sense that you're managing exposure and risk as opposed to managing notional capital. Um, that was really fascinating to me. And so it was just kind of, it kind of ended up there. But a funny story, and this has changed, you probably would say this too, Wes, is that I have given talks, I remember, in academic environments, and people were so focused on equity markets, um, this was maybe 2010, 2008, that the only thing they could say is, did you use the farmer French factors? And I would just look at them and go, what? (laughs) (laughs) I don't understand. I mean, we just didn't even speak the same language because um, it's just such a different type of, um, you know, you're not going to use a cross-sectional factor using equity information to explain something that is an aggregate um, index. No, and I, it's, it doesn't make sense to me, but I had a heart. I realized that we just didn't speak the same um, language at that point. I, I agree. And just in my own experience, just even talking with, you know, PhDs in finance, when you mention the term managed futures, because every professor has to say they know a lot about it. You, when you start talking to them about it, I, I would estimate that, you know, off the cuff, like 90 percent of them don't really understand that much about futures at all. They just have to say they do. <laughs> exactly. I yeah. mean, actually, the things that I think are the least understood are just the way that portfolios are built um, because it's just so different. And I, I know myself, I've had interactions with pension funds and having to actually go down to explain the difference between leverage and implied leverage. Um, that's something that is just something that I think a lot of people just are unaware of just the way that when you build a futures portfolio, 90% or 90% of your actual capital is within a brokerage account in T-bills or cash. Um, And then the remainder of that is sort of capital at very high risk. So it's like a barbell portfolio. Um, And a lot of people, I think they're very unaware of how that is done. Um, And I think that's changing because, you know, institutional investors are becoming more aware of it, too. But from the academic side, it is a very different and very practical detail. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Katie Kaminsky from MIT. She's studying at the Financial Engineering School there, but also done a lot of work with managed futures. Uh, and so, Katie, when you think about the what you just talked about, there's a combination of focusing on fees and and what are the fees on a lot of these CTAs where they're charging performance fees and higher normal fees? And then also just the return environment we've been in. And, and certainly talking about crisis alpha, there's been more volatility just in recent days. Uh, and this is the question, is, is managed future going to come back? But when I think about why people are focused on fees, is return expectation really for stocks and bonds have come down with you know low-weight environment. And now you just talked about managed futures having the T-bill component as a major anchor. Do you How have your return expectations? You've done a lot of work. You've got in your book 800 years of data for trend following. How has your return expectations for managed futures maybe changed? Is there any, do you have any sense of calibrating I think, returns? I don't think that my return expectations um, have changed. I just think return expectations are conditional on the environment. So interest rates are a major component. Um, so as, as I explained, so step one is that if you think about um, building a managed futures portfolio, if 85% of your capital is in T-bills and the T-bill rate is close to zero, um, you don't have a lot of carry. Um, But if you go back into the 80s and 90s even, um, these strategies had substantial carry on their cash. Um, And so you look at returns in the 70s and 80s and people go, oh, wow, you know, we missed this great run. Well, if you have an 8% return just on your cash added to whatever your trading returns are, it helps a lot. Um, yeah, so, no kidding. So, yeah, exactly. So number one is interest rate environments are important. And number two is, you know, trend falling strategies in particular, which are trying to follow direction of market. So up and down, if our return expectations are lower for general asset classes, then the trends in return are lower. So sort of those two things kind of go hand in hand because essentially what trend strategies are trying to do is be long and short different assets when they're going up or down 
and the predominant trend that we see over time is risk the trends of those risk premia. Now, there are other opportunities, but those are going to be at the core, especially for slower strategies, um, the, the anchor for return expectations. Um, so if you're in an environment with very high uh, risk premia, then you know that's going to be an anchor as well for, for how trend will perform. Katie, this is Wes. I had a question, and this is great because I just get to ask you all the questions that I always get asked, but have you deal with them? Oh. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I'll, I'll get to hear from the, the master ninja managed futures person here. Um, but one question we get a lot of times is, you know, is is this whole trend following managed future stuff dead because now we have faster computers and machine learning algos and all this kind of stuff? Just uh, you care to comment on uh, how the regime well, might help? I, I love that question because I have seen it pronounced dead multiple times in my tenure in the in the field as well. Um, and usually every time it's pronounced dead is when something happens and it works again. Um, but the way that I tend to think about trend following is that if you think about trend following as a strategy, what you're trying to do is go long and short based on the direction that the market's moving. So in general, that's a very hard thing to make money doing because either you're just pulling the risk premia, but with noise, because you might be wrong sometimes in terms of long and short. But when these strategies tend to work the best is when things are really disruptive. So in some sense that, you know, markets are moving in ways that people didn't expect. So good example would be 2014. Equity investors don't really care that much about 2014, but if you travel to the Middle East in 2014, you would realize that that was a very disruptive period. So um, if you take an example like that where oil prices moved in a way that people really did not expect or anticipate, that's precisely the type of trends that tend to be still relatively um, make the risk premia in trend falling exist. Um, I think adding just one other point to that is that this is not um, a simple strategy. So even to capture this type of trend risk premia requires you to be very dynamic in changing your portfolio around. And that's not an easy task. It's not something you can just buy and hold. Um, so I think that's what will still make the strategy a, a useful um, potential risk premia for investors going forward. Okay, just to follow up on that, um, on your point about uh, dynac dynamic, um, there you know there's there's a range on that too. Do you rebalance every second? Do you you know do it every month? Like, do you have any just high level advice for folks uh, on how frequent and how dynamic uh, like a basic generic trend following system should be? So a basic trend following system, and oftentimes a lot of the products out there that uh, retail investors and 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 investors are looking at, most of it is a longer-term trend-following strategy. And really, trend-following strategies that are that slow, um, the rebalancing is not that fast. And what that means is that, you know, you've got a turnaround of you're maybe looking at data over a several-month window, so it doesn't move quickly. So take the recent period as an example. Since most trend-followers out there are long-term trend, they've, you can, they've they had a very difficult time in the recent downturn in, in equity markets. Why? Well, because they look at they're slow. They're like a slow moving, uh, slow moving boat. And when equity markets start to turn, they're looking at trends over long horizons. So their positions they end up taking a hit as well. Um, now the typical investor is going to want to invest in something like that because the trade off for adjusting all the time is that you lose all of your the value of those risk premia um, in the short run because the transaction cost can be substantial. Um, so most trend-following strategies are run on the much longer time horizon. And the point is, is if you think about a typical buy-and-hold investor, adding something that's a slow-moving but dynamic strategy still has some impact in terms of diversifying a portfolio because if you're just holding long risky assets, you don't have something that's naturally going to be dynamic without you yourself having to make the decisions. 
So Katie, when you think about where you should, what, what sort of assets or what type of future you should include in these managed future strategies, do you have a sense or have a, a preference when you think about how they should be constructed to help provide the best diversification for a portfolio of a, a sort of standard, you know, standard portfolio 60-40 equity bond, let's say a typical moderate investor? When, they, when you think about what's the most additive from a managed futures perspective, how do you think about constructing strategies and what, what should go in them? Where, and maybe that's the portfolio level, but where do the signals, do you think, work the best? So this is where trend-following philosophy is this divergence. A trend-following philosophy comes in. So if you think about equity markets, and let me just use an example. Equity markets, um, if you just buy them, and hold them, you're capturing an equity risk premium. If you try and trade the trend in equity markets, it's actually highly time dependent, okay? So let's say that I use a six-month window and I try and estimate when the market's turning based on this. It turns out that the sharp ratio or the risk-adjusted performance of that one market is very weak. So, for example, maybe it has a sharp of point. I'm just making this up, but 0.005. So nobody in their right mind would just invest in that. So if you sit at home and trend the just one asset, like the S&P, the probability that you know either that you're going to cherry pick the right horizon, yeah. or that you pick a strategy that has not a very high level of information content is high. So. The way that we see things in the trend-following space is we say, okay, we think about every asset as a potential contribution to finding a trend. So we think of that we're looking for trends everywhere where we might be able to measure them. But we agree that the measurement of these trends is very weak. So we may trade nat gas, we'll trade lean hogs, we'll trade palladium, we'll trade everything in the world that we can trade that could have a trend, but we want to trade a small amount of all of them. So the this is a little bit different than perhaps how your traditional stock and bond investor might think about things, but essentially a trend follower's view is we don't know where the next trend is going to be, so we're going to follow the trends in every single market, and we have signals that increase when the trends are increasing in strength. So take 2014 as an example. I like this example because oil is a very good example for this. It was an amazing year to be short oil. So if you look at our portfolio, we would be following trends and measuring them in, I don't know, 90 or 100 different markets. But our signal measurements for oil would be extremely strong because oil had been really sort of tanking over a long period of time. Now, as a trend follower, what that means is that our positions grow and grow and grow as the trend becomes more and more popular. So essentially, going back to your question, what we want to do is build a system that trades all possible trends out there. And the more trends we have, the more chance there is that we might catch something that happens. And the more trends that happen at the same time, the better we're going to do. So 14 is an example. You have oil trade trending. You had in, um, you had currencies you know basically dispersing for the first time in quite a long time. That they sort of we saw the the euro dollar relationship change dramatically. We saw a lot of changes in currency block. So lots of things were happening that year, and that's a precisely the environment where we can do well, even though that wasn't even an equity story at all. Um, so that that's I think it's the more the better, the more the merrier, mm-hmm. I guess, uh, for for a trend following the way to think about the world. So, Katie, this is uh, Wes. Um, just a follow up to that, uh, you know, in general that kind of makes sense at, at some level, but a lot of a lot of investors, whether you know rationally or irrationally, they're you know they're not going to be trading managed futures because they don't want to even be messing with them. But the one thing most investors do have is huge equity exposure. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that you're saying, okay, I have equity, buy and hold, but you know, I'm stuck on it for tax basis reasons, but you know, I want to think about managing my beta tail risk. Um, I mean, how, how do you see, do you think trend is a good idea there? Uh, do you think it's a bad idea? Do you think it's better just buy and hold it? Just curious on your thoughts on managing equity beta risk with trend specifically. So this is a really, really appropriate question for right now. Um, Absolutely. Because um, 
he, recent environment has been an example where trend did the opposite of help you in an equity downturn. Um, and I'm going to explain why and sort of go back to basics uh, with, with managed futures and trend as a component that's a complementary component to to uh, equities. And the, the challenge is the following, okay? So if you're invested in bonds and, and stocks, you have those two asset class exposures. Uh, the way that managed futures works is that we're very opportunistic. It's an opportunistic hedge fund strategy. So we trade all the asset classes. We trade them all long and short, depending on where the market has moved. Now, in 2008, this was a great strategy to have com- to complement your equity exposure because when things happen, a lot of assets are moving, trend-following strategy doesn't require you to think about it. It automatically adjusts to that market environment and moves in the direction of those trends. So w- a couple of years ago, I wrote a paper. It was called um, In Search of Crisis Alpha. And the idea is that crisis alpha is the opportunities gained during times of of equity crisis or distress. So if you think about it, crisis alpha is what investors need. Now, trend falling is one of the strategies that sometimes provides crisis alpha in the right right situation. And I'll explain a couple different ones if that will help. But we all want crisis alpha. The perfect crisis alpha would be a put because then you could guarantee that you would have well it's not really alpha then it's just expensive <laughs> that be, yeah that's not alpha but you know the perfect crisis protection would be a put now crisis alpha strategies would be finding strategies that might be able to adapt to a diff- difficult market environment to actually capture some opportunities that would be uh, very creative to a equity portfolio so trend pulling is one of those for three core reasons Trend-following strategies are highly liquid, so if there's any sort of liquidity issue or some sort of credit issue, um, they tend to be able to sort of handle that situation better than most hedge fund strategies, as an example. But being active across all asset classes means that the the disruption that accompanies a crisis is often where the strategy makes money. So if you look at... um, something like 2008, uh, it turns out that trend models didn't do a very good job making money on the actual downtrend in equities. But what they did was profit on the really the disruption that occurred across short rates, the uh, massive moves in commodities as a result of the change in equity markets, as well as sort of other effects like currencies moving and et cetera. So in that sense, Trend is a possibly good, so trend is a good complement to equity markets, but it's not a pure hedge. It's a statistical hedge. So depending on the type of crisis you're involved in, it it can work or not work. So take the recent days, okay? Um, This environment was an environment that's actually very tough for um, trend falling because trend falling strategies, the only thing that was interesting going into this event in the last two weeks was equity markets. So the trend in equities had a sharp of, I think, people have been quoting in our space, five. So if you just bought equities and held them, there's nothing better than that. So the challenge for that is that if you have a strategy that's looking for trends, what do you think it's going to buy? Equity. Equity, yeah. And if you don't buy the equities, and you're not doing what a trend-following strategy is supposed to do. Um, the challenge is when those positions unravel. And when they do, what happens, the trend is they get out. So if there's a rebound, it can actually not be part of the rebound either. So that is sort of the perfect storm for a trend-following strategy. If it's a short-term reversal in equities with a rebound, like the flash crash or this recent period, those are the times where, honestly, it's very hard for trend to be helpful to you. Now, if we turn into, and let's hope it doesn't happen, a real serious crisis that is extended that affects a large number of economies and many different asset classes over the next couple of months, then I think trend will probably be able to capture those opportunities. But short-term crisis effects are hard capture. 
Very good. We're talking with Katie Kaminsky, an f- expert on trend following, managed futures. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM. We're going to have to take a short break. We'll be back with Katie for the second half of the show. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, joined by co-host today, Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. And we're talking with Katie Kaminsky, who authored the book, Trend Following with Managed Futures, The Search for Crisis Alpha. We're talking about portfolio diversification, how you should think about stock bonds in a year where we're starting to see some volatility back coming into the market. Um, we haven't had volatility in a while, and it, it's really re-emerging. And sort of talking about trend following is one of these diversifying strategies. Is, is something I know Wes and I were both looking forward to today. Uh, and Katie, in the first half of the show, we talked. To, we got a, a, we dove in deep on some of the use cases for for managed futures and trend following. Um, I tried to get some sense of of return expectations given just where rates are have come down, and that's being a key anchor for for returns. Maybe I could push. A little bit further, how do you think about a stock return, a bond return, and, and just frame for people as they think about the returns from asset classes? How would you frame what you think return expectations should be from these strategies? Um, just setting expectations. If I think stocks have a five percent real return given you know the valuations, and, and maybe bonds, real bond returns look like fifty basis points on the tips yield. Uh, maybe they're rising a little bit. How do you think about trend following um, or remaining futures generally? So. I think since managed futures is a strategy that combines um, multiple asset classes and going long and short, um, the way that we tend to think about return expectations is more about um, expected sharp in some sense, because, and, and I'll explain why, is that we, we allocate risk. Um, and so we, instead of allocating capital, we allocate a certain amount of risk. And what that means is that let's say we allocated 15% risk to different asset classes. That means that our portfolio on average should have about 15% volatility. If you think stocks have 18% volatility historically, maybe recently only 8 or 10 until about a month ago, um, that means that the price, the value of our portfolio is going to run around 15% vol based on um, the positions that we take. So we think about um, estimating our returns based on sharp. So if we have a 0.5 sharp, um, that gives us an idea if we have a certain level of vol, um, how that is going to turn into return. So if I'm running, let's say, a, a 10 vol strategy and I have a sharp of 0.5 in expectation, um, then I'm expecting a 5% return over longer time horizons with a 10% volatility. So you can imagine that um, that's kind of the way that we we tend to explain um, our strategy. So we don't think about it as a risk premia that you can sort of estimate or measure. It's more about um, capturing overall risk premia and taking those exposures over time. So it is a little bit harder to to um, to communicate, but that's why we tend to use Sharp as an example. Okay, this is uh, Wes. A uh, few follow-ups on that. Um, the one is, is how do you think about managed future sizing? Like a lot of people look at it as like a pure alt, and they'll say, oh, I'll put 5% and do 95% in the stock market. Um, what's your opinion on how and why managed futures should be sized in a portfolio? So it's a, it really depends on both the objective of the investor as well as what they have in their portfolio. And this is something that I think has really emerged as an, a key theme in our industry. And this is something that we're kind of moving into two camps. And I like to call these um, a risk-mitigating approach or a diversifying approach. So if an investor comes in and they're holding, um, let's say, a lot of equity just a lot of pure equity beta. Um, if you think about that, that's not a very, from a multi-asset class perspective, that's not a very diverse uh, portfolio from, from a managed future side of view because we're thinking about you know commodities, international equities, we're thinking about all these different things. And in that sense, those type of investors, it can be anywhere from a retail investor to pension funds with you know highly specif- specified mandates. Um, take an example of a, a Scandinavian pension fund that holds a very large exposure to the OMX um, stock, in, stock index. Um, that would be an example of somebody who has a lot of equity beta, but maybe less diversification away from that. So those type of investors are really looking for 
more of a more of, of of managed futures to be able to have an impact. So to protect their portfolio, to give them crisis alpha to offset this really large equity risk that they have. Then the more traditional view about managed futures would be that of portfolio diversification. So you're adding a strategy that's lowly correlated or non-correlated, which means that it could still be correlated in certain environments. But in general, the fact that the strategy goes long and short across lots of different asset classes and is opportunistic, it can have the opportunity to add uncorrelated or lowly correlated return streams to a portfolio and add diversification. So, so um so sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that was a great answer. Uh, let me try to get it. Uh, I'll try to pin you down on something that may be more relevant to a okay. lot of the audience out there. Because um, unfortunately, we're not running the Norway pension fund. At least, uh, maybe Jeremy might in the future, not me. Okay. Uh, but let's say I'm, you know, normal person like myself, and I've got my sixty forty retirement. I'm sixty percent Vanguard, you know, whatever SP five hundred and forty percent U.S. Treasury ten years. In that particular case, if that's my baseline, just ballpark and is is ten percent managed futures, fifty zero. What 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 are you what are your thoughts on a I, I baseline? I probably would go with twenty, um, mm-hmm. but that's just because if you put you see investors that do two percent, and you say, well, that's not going to change much. Twenty um, percent is probably going to allow you to have the impact of let's say. If there was an event like an 08 event, you have the opportunity to actually offset some of those traditional asset class exposures. Mm-hmm. Let's also note the fact that equity market, a lot of people have stocks and bonds because correlation between stocks and bonds has been negative in the last 20 some odd years. In the 70s, correlation between those two asset classes was actually positive. Um, so we could definitely get in a situation where both stocks and bonds go against us. And in that case, um, it's even more important that we have strategies that can go short or along those assets, as well as add other return streams that may help us to offset these type of risk events if we end up that all risky assets are kind of doing the same thing instead of diversifying each other. Yeah, and that, that's sort of a theme that's particularly relevant for this year is people, you know, one of the narratives has been, well, the Fed's hiking, bond yields mm-hmm. are going higher, we're getting more competition for stocks, and you've, you've had where this bonds have been this negative beta asset to equities and been a sort of quote-unquote insurance and protection and non-correlation, and people were talking about how you've never, you haven't had a year when the Barclays Aggregate Index and the Stock Index went down at the same time. We go back to like 1969, I heard on another podcast about when the bonds and stocks had the same negative return, uh, but maybe, the, you know, the equities get feared, that rising rate, so it's interesting. Do you think, you know, we, Wes and I, we had a, a show, not maybe four or five months ago, with um, people saying maybe you should have separately an interest rate momentum signal as part of your bond positions in a way that people don't have enough rate momentum as part of their strategies. Do you think that's even worth having a separate rate momentum for a bond hedge as as part of a risk management tool? Well, I think, I mean, I definitely think that that's something that all investors need to think about is how much are they relying on that correlation. And this is something I myself have been interested in. And and I've written a couple of papers about it from the managed future side. And, you know, honestly, we all focus on data that is pretty recent. So we just don't have in our experience that these environments where this type of event occurs, where, you know, bonds sell off and (laughs) sell off at the same time. So we just don't, it's not in our portfolio construction. It's not in the data. Um, So it's never going to happen. Yeah, it's not going to happen, right? Um, but then it's going to happen. Um, and I think one of the, the, the challenges is that that means that we need to find strategies and approaches that have the ability to sell bonds aggressively and also be able to oper- to take advantage of a downward trend in bond prices. I mean, to your I mean, point, though, if bonds are 40% of a 60-40 and people are trying to size it right, like 20% of a managed future strategy, will the bond component be enough? You know, like it goes to the equity point, too. Like, is do, do people have, what's the appropriate sizing? It gets all back to that question, right? Well, I mean, I guess I, I think you asked me more sort of should they be using interest rate momentum. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I think that 
we're using interest rate momentum. I mean, our trend following strategies are trying to look at the momentum in interest rates, just like in stocks as well. And I think most of the studies that I have seen on on trend, as an example, because if you look back at studies in in the in the 70s, you have to use synthetic futures in these periods because obviously interest rate futures didn't exist back then. Um, but if you look at the price movements and the potential for trends in prices, you see that um, there are substantial opportunities on the down when you know on the down, going in the short direction in those markets that we would in the last 30 years never thought about. Um, and that data kind of shows why it's important to have a strategy that is sort of agnostic to direction. Let me just reintroduce our guest before West jumps in. We've got Katie Kaminsky, uh, co-author of a book on trend following, trend following with managed futures, the search for crisis alpha. West, I know you want to jump in. Yeah, cool. so Katie, I think, uh, I mean, this is a discussion that uh, I've been having recent conversations about where we're all trying to think about where is the next crisis, and arguably the next crisis is in front of our face. It's everyone relies on the 60-40 as a diversified portfolio because under the assumption that those bonds are going to, be your quote-unquote crisis alpha, but if they don't, you could certainly see a lot of fear and craziness out there. Um, and so so I, uh, this is great. And, but one thing I wanted to ask you about is in, in your book, I can't remember what time series it is, but on bond and interest rates specifically, you, I mean, you have data going back farther than anyone. I understand it's maybe wasn't tradable back then, but you know, given your long out-of-sample history, I think you show that trend following on duration bonds works, right? Exactly. And I mean I think I think the thing to think about is that and this is just kind of to give people a little bit of an insight of how a trend follower thinks about markets. We try to be agnostic. We don't think about bonds should have this return. Stocks should have this return over some period of time. The way we think about it is things happen and we follow the direction of the markets. And we use rules and we use statistical approaches to figure out how to do that. So ultimately, a strategy like that, the goal is wherever there's going to be a movement or direction, we want to follow it, whether or not it's something that's uncomfortable for us. So that's where people are at risk when they have assumptions about asset classes and correlations and what they're supposed to get from something. That's where they have weaknesses that they may not see. So portfolios can have weaknesses by making an assumption about long-term equity premium always being that. And that's that's kind of the way that philosophically I try to explain it is that if you have that view over history, there's always environments where, you know, things like that have happened and trend falling has been able to navigate that because it, the whole goal of the strategy is not to ask why is this happening, but to ask what is happening and to follow the market's direction. And I think people have a hard time um, emotionally sometimes in those type of environments making that type of decision. I mean, I guess all of us know that, that when you're sitting there and you you have to face the fact that you might be wrong, um, it's it's very difficult. Um, and that's why we don't, we don't let we focus on letting our, our approach <laughs> answer those questions. And it is painful sometimes to watch, but, you know, that that's the idea of having an approach that's more agnostic to some of these assumptions. So, so let's drill into a little bit. Um, we've talked a lot about the asset class at a high level. If you went into somebody building a managed future strategy and you're thinking about trying to build different signals across the different complexes, um, whether it's equities, bonds, commodities, the currencies, do you think that it's so maybe talk about the signals themselves? How do you think about the time horizon of the signals and, and sort of what measurement period you're looking at managing the trend, short term versus longer term signals, medium term, having a composite signal that goes across uh, trying to determine these multiple time horizons and multiple ways of looking at it, and maybe across the different complexes? Do you think it needs to be uniform? Do you think each commodity or currency or should have its own signal? How do you think about that? Well, let's start with the idea that. Um again, like this agnostic approach that you should have some sort of statistical reasoning for why you would tilt something away from the simplest approach. So what I mean by that is that, you know, 
just because, uh, if you don't, you're more likely to pick something that worked in the past that won't work in the future. So the way that we tend to think about things is, again, let's do as much as possible. So um, just to go back to the signal example that you suggested is the way that I usually explain trend-following signals is that you want to think about each time horizon as a memory. So if somebody has a very short-term memory, um, you may know some people like that. They're just remembering only what happened in the last week. So short-term trend-following systems really only try and examine what's happened in their memory for short periods of time, and sometimes that's a good thing. Um, Medium-term trend-following systems are looking over, say, a quarter or a little bit longer, and then you're thinking about you're having enough memory to kind of remember a little bit more time and then react to that. And sometimes that's a good thing um, or a bad thing. Um, and then longer term is when you're kind of looking at stepping back and you're looking at the picture and squinting your eyes and say, what's the trend, up or down? And that is another way to think about trends. So. When you build a system, you don't want to just say there's only one type of trend. You want to define trends across time horizons for all asset classes and then trade an aggregate approach where you wait between the different trends falling systems. So I tend to think of it as a voting system. So if you have a short term, so let me give an example of what just recently happened in equities. So in recent, most managed futures strategies were very long equities. Why? Because for everything you can remember, it was going up. Your short-term memory, your long-term memory, your medium-term memory. So all of those would be voting. It's a huge trend. Um, and then as you see a huge sell-off, you'd see that the short-term especially would start screaming the other direction. No, this is not a trend anymore in that direction. Medium-term would be starting to get adjusted to the fact that, and the long-term might say, oh, you know, this is probably just temporary. Um, and so if you think about that, that's how a how positions should be made. Instead of it just being long-term or medium-term or short-term, it's about balancing across those different time horizons with a tilt. There's one trade-off. The trade-off is the faster you go, the more expensive it's going to be for you. So you need to trade off the potential hit to your return for being too fast and too short-sighted. So you tend to underweight some of the shorter signals, but you still want to listen to them and give them a vote because they tell something about where the market is moving and going. Katie, this is uh, Wes. Just a quick follow-up follow up on that. And, and tell me if this is a fair statement or not, but would the, how you calculate your trend also at some level depend on your, on your in-state goals? For example, if I was purely concerned about insurance slash crisis alpha, do, don't I kind of almost need to be more dynamic to be positioned or, or, or is it fine to be long term? Like what are your opinions on how it may differ depending on your in-state goal? Exactly. So if your goal is diversification, it's going to be very different. Sort of the best overall sharp ratio, the best sort of smooth ride. It's going to be very different than if it's crisis alpha. If your goal is crisis alpha, you have to think about a couple of things. One, speed matters. So faster systems do better in crisis, but they tend to have worse overall risk-adjusted performance. So you need to be faster, and you may need to also consider how much equity beta that you're actually holding. So, for example, if your strategy, um, a very simple thing that you see some CTAs might do is, let's say, they might limit themselves not to have long positions in the equity market hmm. just by mandate. Only short. Um, by, yeah, and only go short. So that type of system, let's think when you have, let's think about that system. In the last year, they would have underperformed everybody who was a diversifier because they wouldn't have caught the run-up in equities at all. Um, but when equities sold off, they would already have risk exposure in other trends as long as their other trends we're not correlated. <laughs> That's a, there's a there's a bullet point there because if you were holding bonds and they also sold off, even if you don't have equities, you still would have taken a, a loss. So if you're thinking about crisis alpha, you have to think a little bit more strategically about what characteristics of the strategy make it better able to complement an equity portfolio. So. There's a lot of things you can do. One is you could vary your risk depending on the environment. So take more risk when you have 
the ability to diversify. Another is you could limit the traditional exposures that your clients already have. So equity beta or other equity position, equity like positions. Um, and finally, you could be faster so that you're able to react more quickly because equity sell-offs particularly tend to be asymmetrically fast. <laughs> so, yeah. Katie, yeah, this is Weskin. Uh, another follow-up here. So it seems to be the case that most of us, uh, whether it's smart or not, are you know loaded up to the gills in equity. So you would expect that you know managed futures would be you know more of an interesting scenario. Um, but I, I question the business side of it because when you when you think about it, as someone who runs a crisis alpha managed futures business, you're basically hated most of the time. And then when the crisis happens and you win. You know, people say, oh, thanks, you went up, I'm going to liquidate you now to rebalance. So you almost, when you ex-ante try to consider, like, who would be crazy enough to set up that business, the answer is nobody. Um, how do you think about that? And how the heck would an investor actually expect to access this through intermediated, you know, service providers? So I think th- this is this is precisely the challenge of managed futures. It's sort of, I mean, it's it's sort of a milder version of being a dedicated short seller. Um, I don't want to say it that way, but, it, you know, we tend to do well often when people aren't doing so well, and that's kind of a hard social thing to ex- to experience, as you said. I mean, 2008 was one of the best years, and you're not really going to start popping the champagne if you're having a great year when everybody is in so much trouble. Um, and so, as in general, the way that people handle that is that a lot of CTA strategies, if you look at it, tend to be more in the diversification camp. So they do, you know, maybe don't limit their equity beta. They, they're looking for other strategies outside of trend to increase their robustness outside of periods when trend isn't working. Um, and so, and they also spend a lot of time, uh, like myself, in education um, and trying to frame what we do to investors so that they can understand, um, understand what's going on. I have a joke in that. Honestly, every day that, you know, I can always tell when equity markets go down because I usually get a call. My mom will call me and she'll say, what are CTAs doing? <laughs> every time. Because that's when people call CTAs. They they call them when equity markets go down um, because it's one of the few things they know that might do something different. Um, so it is a hard place to be. It's also exciting because there are very few things out there, and I, I spend a lot of time working on different hedge fund strategies, especially in, in the academic perspective. And and really, it's one of the only strategies that has such a complementary risk profile. So it's a great resource to an investor, but you're always going to be troubled with this issue that, you know, when equities do well, nobody cares. Um and then when they don't, they expect you to fix it, then they liquidate. <laughs> exactly. Katie, this has been a fantastic conversation. Anywhere you should, investors or people listening in, want to find your research, anything you want to highlight of where they can find you? Yeah, um, I have, uh, I'm on the website and I can you can email me at MIT and I can put up my email. Um, also, my book, Trend Following with Managed Futures, is on Amazon, um, also to, with Wiley. So if you have interest in it or if you want to ask me about it, Feel free to contact me uh, via my MIT email. It's okay to give it, or or can you guys post it? I don't know. That's probably the best. Yeah, we'll we'll post it on the show notes. Uh, and and um, thank you for for listening in um, and for joining us today. Thank you. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 111. Wes, thanks for coming down to the studio today. Thanks as always. Um, you can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Thanks to our sound engineer Daniel Bruno, our producer Patty Hall. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast. 